listening to Energy Matters in the Classroom with Robin Berlinski, the show that highlights and celebrates the kinetic and potential energy in classrooms across the globe and why it matters. We're heard nationally wherever fine podcasts are available and weekly on the radio at Charleston, South Carolina's 1250 WTMA Sunday mornings at 8. You guessed it, our home base is Charleston, South Carolina. Robin, welcome to your show, as I like to say every week. I love it. And uh, why don't you, because you guys are obviously old friends, why don't you introduce our special guest for this podcast? Oh my gosh, I am so excited, as I am always, but I'm especially excited today because Tracy Hunter Doniger is a fellow um, professor at the College of Charleston where I am adjunct. We've talked about that before, but something special now is she's my boss. So I want you, Tracy, to introduce what you do now at the college because it's too much for me to say. And you also wrote a book that we're going to talk about, but... Oh. Give us your bio, other than <laughs> awesomeness. <laughs> okay, basically, I'm Dr. Awesome. No, um, Dr. Hunter Doniger, um, I am the department chair now at the College of Charleston Teacher Education um, Department, and now it's the School of Education. That's a new thing at the College of Charleston. What do I do? Um, creativity, innovation. I teach pre-service teachers uh, kindergarten through eighth grade, and I also observe student teachers. I teach um, creativity in the arts, and that's all the arts, not just visual art. It's all of them. Um, there's, there's just a, I wish I, I had tell you what, let me, let me do I'm this. Like, wow. I have, I have your official introduction. <laughs> okay, right. good. Let me you read do that. it Thank in a, a semi-professional way, and then you guys can talk. I about love that you know her more than right. she knows herself. Dr. Tracy Hunter Doniger, did I get that right? You got it. As an associate professor and the department chair of teacher education at the College of Charleston, specializing in arts in education. She began her career as a public school teacher for 15 years. Her central research focus is STEAM education, child-centered approaches like is it TAB or TAB? How do we put TAB. TAB, forest schools, and the Reggio approach, and how the arts can play a part in equity, diversity, and inclusion. Now, does that sum it up? Well, that is so much better than what I was trying to fumble through. <laughs> Thank you. All right, Robin, where should we start? I mean, I, I love the fact there's a book. Maybe oh we should gosh. kick in with uh, what the, the uh, impetus was behind writing a book, because I always love when people take the time. Everybody talks about it. Very few people actually do it. Why don't mm-hmm. you tell us about your book? Well, the book that I wrote is actually for my students. So the class that I teach is about creativity and how to incorporate the arts into regular classrooms. And there really wasn't anything out there. There were art books for art teachers. There were regular classroom books. But there wasn't something that married the two and explained all the complexities between it. And so um, I decided that I needed to have a really good resource, and I was, why not me? Why not (laughs) write it for my students? Um, One of the key things that I like about the book, and the students say that they like, but it could be just because I'm their professor, but they say that they like it because it's written in a more conversational way instead of really boring text. And one of the things I wanted to make sure I did was not create a textbook that was so boring that the students would just fall asleep as they would read it. And, you know, that's what I would have done. And so it's more of a conversation, like if we're talking about a complex idea or a philosopher, I pause and I even say, hey, do you understand that? If not, here's what it is. And then I explain it in more detailed fashion. And um, it's small bites, just like how you would eat an elephant, just little bites at a time. And so they can comprehend a whole lot of different things, not just visual and performing arts, but also like the experts who tie into that. And that includes like, you know, 
philosophical people like Mihai Csikszentmihalyi and his idea of flow and everything else that goes along with that. By the way, I know you're a high energy person. I yeah. just want to, every time you bang the desk, oh, I'm so sorry. Hear, no, it's okay. <laughs> I just want to, because we're breaking that fourth wall and it's like people yes. are welcomed into the studio. It's mm-hmm. okay. People do it all the time, but uh, it shows that you're excited and, and enthusiastic to be here. Yeah. Well, that's, that's why I'm, I'm so glad I'm not on camera because right. I cannot sit still. This is rough. The TV shows that. Nice. That's nice. No, no, no. All right, so I know Robin has some questions for you coming up, but let me get through some of this uh, it's the background stuff, which is what I find fascinating. Your class is all about creativity. Mm-hmm. How does creativity inspire kids, and how does it support the curriculum? Oh, it, it, in everything. Um, if you are sitting in a class, and this is what I always tell my students, is that if you're a teacher and you're sitting there and you're teaching the students, if you're just going straight from the textbook, if you're teaching from the text, it's boring. It's dull. It's not fun for the teacher. It's not fun for the students. But when you bring in creativity, you get more engagement. You get more um, involvement with the students along the way. So that's that's one of the key things for the curriculum because you could take a boring curriculum, but you jazz it up with a little bit of energy and a little bit of excitement and have the kids actually moving around instead of sitting stagnant. It changes everything. It really does. Well, I know who agrees with you. She's yep. sitting across the table. I, Robin, I you jump in with a question. that one. Yeah. I want to just say, I want to back up just a tad. I want to um, share a story of the day I met you. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember this day. I was then director of, edu- or, yes, director of education at the Children's Museum, and a professor at the college had booked a field trip for her students who are 21 years old. Mm-hmm. And I had been used to seven-year-olds and eight-year-olds and welcome- welcoming them in my woohoo way. <laughs> And I walk out and there are, you know, 20 adults standing with this energetic professor from the college. And that was my first moment of realizing the college made a really good decision. Your energy and those students, they had so much fun, but they had so much reason for being there. Mm -hmm. They were focused and studying, but again, having so much fun, they didn't know they were learning. Mm -hmm. And so that's that energy that I just was drawn to you. I wanted to be in your space more. And now I get to teach with her. It's so awesome. Well, what is your inspiration? I mean, where does the creativity and and the energy come from? Because not everybody is born with that personality, that ability to bring it. I don't know. I don't know where it came from. I come from a family of six kids, grew up on a farm, no neighbors. Like the nearest neighbor was probably about four miles away where you cut across the river to my grandma's house, literally through the woods and across the river to my grandma. Um, That was our nearest neighbor. But you come up with a lot of ways of being creative when you're on the farm and doing things. But I've always been drawn to art. Art has always been my key thing. Ever since I was a little kid, I would, you know, dig up clods of clay and create things and make things. And um, that's where I shined. Um, when I was a little kid in in school, I couldn't wait to go to school. It was like, oh, it's wonderful. And um, I always had problems reading. Always started at the lowest group, the Charlie Brown group. It was literally called the Charlie Brown group. And I was, <laughs> and um, I could comprehend what I read, but I could not read out loud. And I struggled through school all my life. And um, the arts are where I hid behind and, you know, the energy and, you know, like being you know, a happy kid, just doing these things, whatever I could do to make everybody else happy. Um, and it was usually through the arts. And so instead of feeling like the dumb kid or being labeled the dumb kid who can't read, I was labeled the art kid, and I got to do bulletin boards, and, you know, I got to do those kinds of things. And it wasn't until I was going through my Ph.D. program, and then I was struggling with all the comprehensive reading and going through all of that stuff, that 
I, you know, went to someone and said, I'm having a lot of trouble. And so someone suggested I get tested for dyslexia. And when I went there, the person said, how did you ever survive? Like, you have wow. such, you have such dyslexia. It, it is amazing. And I'm like, well, it's humor, creativity, thinking outside of the box and thinking globally. And I was like, okay, well, that makes, makes so much sense. And what it did for me is it gave me a little bit more freedom saying like, okay, that's okay that you can't read at the same pace as everybody else, but there's other ways you can get around that, where I have the computer read it as I'm reading it, so it keeps me focused <laughs> to keep the energy where it's supposed to be. But then one of my favorite things to do is share that with my students and say like, hey, if you're not understanding this, you could do this. Or if you have a student who's not understanding, this is what you could do. And it just seems more appropriate for them to understand that, you know, I might have a PhD, but it was through a lot of work and persistence. Number one thing. It's not that I'm highly intelligent. I'm very persistent. And that's key. But still getting back to the earlier part of the story, it, it sounds like it was a teacher who fostered this creative spark in you and gave you that that ability to go off in that direction. Mm -hmm. Well, there there was, well, my kindergarten, I didn't go to kindergarten because in Indiana, that was an option. And on the farm, my mom was like, well, why do I send you there? You could stay here and I don't have to drive you into town. <laughs> so, <laughs> but my um, first grade teacher, she would actually let me, you know, do do extra things. And at recess, um, when it was snow days, I would um, help out my fellow classmates. I'm like, well, well, this is how you draw a person. And this is what you would do. And this is how you draw a princess. And we would actually like turn around on the bleachers because we couldn't use the gym floor, but we would, you know, be able to sit on the bleachers. And that's one thing I could do. But my elementary art teacher, Miss Wallach, she was fabulous. And she, in, she entered this little farm girl from Wheatfield, Indiana into the world of art. And she showed us things from, um, the Louvre, she showed us Michelangelo, and it blew my mind. And I couldn't get enough. And I would go to the library and read some things or try to find some things to read. But in the 1970s, there wasn't a whole ton about Michelangelo and the Wheatfield Public Library. Well, speaking of Michelangelo, and this is something you wanted to bring up about Italy. Well, yeah, this is so great because Tracy, before the pandemic, had invited me for this amazing opportunity to be a chaperone to go to Italy with her students. I was so excited. And then the pandemic. Mm. So I want to just talk about that for a minute <laughs> because I love that you take students there. Mm -hmm. And I want to know more. I know it's the Reggio Emilio yeah. approach. Yes. And you mentioned that in your bio. Well, well, but, but do me a favor. Would you explain I, that for a second for the rest of us who don't know what that is and then continue? Yeah, yes. definitely. I want you to talk about that because, um, you know, I'm sad I didn't go to Italy, but I'm so glad everybody else gets all these great opportunities, and I wanted you to talk about that. Okay, so first of all, is this a play for you can, to come this May with us? Okay, yeah, you that's on record. <laughs> okay. Everybody, please take note. I heard <laughs> Got it. it. I heard <laughs> it. <laughs> Absolutely. You're more than welcome to come. Absolutely. Done. Um, done and done. We have uh, <laughs> 16 slots for students, and we have already... 37 people who applied. So wow, it's, it's wonderful. pretty exciting. So what the Reggio Emilia approach is, um, Reggio Emilia is a city that's in Italy, in Northern Italy, where all the delicious food and Prosecco and everything else flows freely. Um, but their approach to learning began right after World War II, when they were given money to rebuild and redo things. And different communities were you know, given this money to do whatever they wanted. Well, Reggio Emilia decided that, you know what, what we want to do is 
build our future. And the future begins with the early childhood children. And the whole idea behind the Reggio approach is it's the child's approach to learning. So whatever they're interested in, the standards and everything else that has to be taught is kind of backfilled. So if they're interested in, let's say, paper and boxes, so the teachers are like, okay, cool. Let's think about, you know, what a, what kind of environment could be in here and how many pencils can fit in this. And so they work in everything kind of a different way. Um, so... That's that's the whole idea behind it. It's child-centered, and then you bring other things in. The other side of it is because it's early childhood, the arts are key. So music is huge. Uh, the drawing and painting, and um, it's just amazing to see these different things because I've seen three- to five-year-olds painting. It's just a piece of fruit cut in half or you know a cabbage that has just different variations of green, and they can sit there for 15 minutes drawing and painting and doing this whole thing where I don't think that our 21-year-old students can sit and observe that long and actually go through that, and it's just something that's built into it. The other side of the Reggio Emilia approach is that the students, the children, are empowered. They know that they are leaders. They know that they are artists. They know they are scientists. They begin at that level instead of vessels that need to be filled. They already have ideas, and they're empowered to share that. And so that's that's the great reason why we bring the students there. So what kind of aha moments do you witness when you're all together over there? Oh, my gosh. Well, I, I enjoy watching the students. Now that I've been there a few times, I enjoy watching our students just sit in awe with how these children, five-year-olds, are really focused on, let's say, if they're sitting in a room, the the paper. the and But when I say paper, paper is a huge thing. And they have light boxes, and they let the students or the children explore where they add oil to the paper, or they put them on light boxes, or can they see through it? They just let them experiment and you know make mistakes, and then from those mistakes, they learn other things. And so watching our students realize that, that's interesting. The other thing about the Reggio Emilia approach is that the environment itself is considered the third teacher. So the third teacher they wouldn't have, you know, fluorescent lighting. They would have natural lighting. They would have those kinds of things. And being outdoors is another huge thing. And not man-made tools or anything like that. They would have, like, stumps and rocks and things so those kids can, like, almost build forts. And that's that's also part of what they're doing because that's part of engineering. That's part of learning and spatial learning and all of these other things. Then they're learning through natural ways that kids would do that. Well, speaking of energy matters, I love the energy between the two of you. So I know you have more questions, so please. Well, I want to add on to what you're talking about because I also attended a workshop that Tracy was hosting when, I don't know if you went to Germany, but there was a woman from Germany presenting the forest schools. And that's another approach that I'm really curious about because mm -hmm. it sounds like it's all outside and the kids learn by doing. Mm -hmm. Do you take students to Germany also? Is that another trip I should pack for? <laughs> that is one that is on the docket. I would love to go to the Red Geo schools and then go to the four schools in Germany. Um, yeah, I, I did get to actually see them. I went on sabbatical to go, go ahead and you know check that out and see what it is because growing up on a farm, this is how I learned. And then when I first heard about this and I brought it up to students, um, they're like, no way. Why would you have kids outside all day? What if it rains? And there's all these things. And like, it's such an American mentality of like, what could go wrong? Where in Germany, in the four schools, it's more what could go right? 
You know, if they get muddy, fantastic. What do they learn from that? They're climbing up a tree, and you, they said that there's not a lot of accidents. Kids don't fall out of trees unless the parents are around and they're distracting them. They have a mindset, and then they teach others as they're going through. So that's that's the joy of um, the forest schools. And again, the arts are huge. They have... Um, what they call work wagons, which is just a wagon that's put out into the woods, and literally the kids are out there, and it they have real tools and they have real saws, and the you know the teachers aren't saying, oh no, you need to hold it like this. The kids are like, hmm, I want to build a shield and a sword, and so they take the old wood and they start just sawing and hacking at it, and the other children are doing the same thing. These are five year olds, wow. and. I remember they were teach, not teaching the kids to whittle. That was one of the options for like three-year-olds. So they're sitting in a circle like a bunch of old men and women with these large five-inch knives just whittling and just talking and having conversations. And I was about having a heart attack. They're like, no, if they cut themselves, they'll learn not to do that. And it's like, okay. But the, the end story is that it, it's another way that the students are empowered. The children take the lead in this and it gives them so much energy and ideas from that, and then the teachers can build upon that. Um, they said that the the teacher turnover is zero. Teachers do not leave that job, even though it's in the rain and it's in the, in the snow, and you know it's it's cold climate in Germany. They absolutely love it because the kids are engaged. Plus, the teachers are empowered to do things their way and mm -hmm. get results. Is that uh, based on my naivete? Is that uh, different than the way it is here at uh, at home? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I knew the answer. I need you, you to tell it. You set me up. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, depending on what the schools are, everything is very prescribed. And that's why there's not a ton of forest schools here in the United States because the rules and regulations and insurance and all those different things you have to check off the boxes. One of the main boxes that you have to check off is what's your physical address? Well, some of these forest schools are on some farmer's land that said that, yeah, you could be there and there's no physical building. So right there, you know, that blows the minds of most American, you know, companies or school systems because there's no place to send these forms to and there's no electricity. There's so it, that wow. that's huge. And so um, that that's kind of a stopper. We have some schools that are in um, Washington State and Colorado, more of the granola, crunchy, earthy type places. Um, but we had one here in South Carolina that was starting as a preschool, as just a, you know, a nice little tip in the toe in the water. But then COVID happened. And then it just kind of was like, yeah, we're not going to do that. So I don't know if she's planning on opening it up again, but it, it was rising and doing really well. Wow. I have a question that's really one of those like dumb questions, but I'm going to put it right out mm -hmm. and be vulnerable right now. Do they have standardized testing or aren't there, like, again, I'm thinking mm -hmm. like an American, but where's the math and science? Like, are they tested on this and they learn it while they're out in the forest? Yeah. Well, there's no, you know, the, the standardized test with early childhood. It's not actually happening. Oh, these are all early childhood. These gotcha. are the ones that I visited in Germany, but I also visited some that were in um, the Netherlands. And it was, you know how we have art, PE, and music? Well, they also have forest school. And this was in inner city. And so they either went to a park or they turned in an old parking lot into their own forest or their own forest school or their own horticulture type thing. And so they're learning these different things. Um, but a lot of people, even in Germany, you, 
they have their rules and they love their rules. And yes, they do have standardized tests and standards to meet up to. But um, when they go into first grade, on their way up, as the kids are learning, when they're developmentally ready, and that's the key thing is when the students are ready, not when everybody else is ready. When the students are ready and start getting interested in reading and, you know, beyond the numbers that, you know, that they're doing within the forest school, they start teaching them. They're teaching them foreign language when they're out in the woods. They're teaching them, you know, all of the same curriculum, just in a different location, just with different focuses. That makes sense. But I know you have, and maybe I can help you ask the question. Robin often says the greatest compliment she gets is that people compare her to you. <laughs> oh my God, that's the favorite. I didn't mean to part take that teaching. question away from you, but I want. No, it's awesome. They are like, do you know Doctor HD? I'm like, oh uh, yeah. Oh, you remind us of her. I'm like, yes. So it's the greatest compliment. <laughs> my students say the same thing about you. Oh, like, oh yeah. Dr. Berlinski, oh, she's fantastic. Oh yeah, Dr. Berlinski, and that's the other uh, thing. I I do not correct them. So let me go on public record, <laughs> students. I do not have my doctorate, but you may still continue to call me Dr. Berlinski. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and why do they call you Dr. HD? I don't think we've talked about that yet. Yeah. Uh, well, my last name is Hunter Doniger, but it's easier to say Dr. HD. But I also tell them that it's very close to being like high def. So it's HD, Dr. HD, and that's an easy way to remember it. Yeah. <laughs> So you told us earlier you're from Indiana. How did you wind up here in South Carolina? That's a beautiful question. Um, So I taught for 15 years in the public school. And I received this wonderful creativity grant from Eli Lilly and their company that's in Indiana and pharmaceutical company. They, uh, I think, needed a tax write-off. But so that's what they do. (laughs) But what it was, it was this wonderful program where you got to – Teachers were able to write in and figure out what they would do outside of class to rejuvenate themselves and then bring it back in. And so I wanted to go out west and take photographs like Ansel Adams and follow the traces of like Yellowstone and take photographs. And this is on the cusp of um, digital photography. Like we had one or two in our whole elementary school and I was like, okay, this is what we're going to do. So I did that. It was fantastic. And I taught my students. We went to the Indiana Dunes National Park and we had them take turns, like creating little viewfinders. And then when they knew exactly the photo, they would be handed over the precious digital camera, which is kind of silly. It was before, you know, cell phones and everything. But um, on that trip, I told my husband, I said, I've always wanted to be a professor. How can I do that? And he's like, you know what? Why stay in Northwest Indiana? And so he ended up finding a job in one of the keys was like, you got to find a job where I can get a PhD, Wisconsin, which is where he and I met at a summer camp. So I went to Madison, Wisconsin, got my PhD. And that year it was 100 inches of snow. And I said, let's 100. go some 100, 100. Uh, on the streets, when our kids would walk to school, it was piled so high you couldn't see around the corner. Wow. It, it was very high. And I said, um, can we move someplace warmer? And this position opened up here and interviewed and got the job. And next thing I knew, we were moving everything and everybody down here. Well, that's fascinating. Welcome to South Carolina. I mean, uh, I, I still can't comprehend 100 inches of snow. It's pretty high. Isn't My it? goodness. Very big. Um <laughs> One quick question. We're getting uh, down to the end of this, and I want to make sure you get your last one in, but did you always want to be a teacher, or were you looking at a different career field earlier in your life? 
Ever since second grade, I've always wanted to be an art teacher. And and it seems so weird that at second grade, you know, eight years old, I knew that I wanted to teach art. I had Miss Wallach as my, my inspiration, but that was one place where I knew that was my strength. And I always wanted to go into the field, no matter what everybody would say, like, oh, go into advertising and I'll make more money. I'm a teacher. I'm an art teacher through and through both both sides of me. I just, no matter what I would want to do, it has to do with teaching and helping people learn. I love that you just did a shout out to your favorite teacher. I love shouting out to favorite <laughs> teachers. That's awesome. Well, there's always one that makes that impact. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I still, my fifth grade teacher, I still remember like yesterday. I've told you about it. I mean, incredible. Yeah. Um, all right. Your last question is about, I, I don't want to give it away, the... Uh, Waving the magic wand. Yeah. So something I'm always asked, because this podcast for me and radio show is all about my 30 years of experience and what I've observed, and I want to share it with the world. And I get asked often, what would the perfect school be if you had a magic wand? And so I I know this, you know, is a four-hour conversation, but (laughs) give me in your view what it looks like. Oh, that is so crazy because I was thinking about that I was as I was driving in. I'm like, what would be the best school ever? So um, since my main area and focus is early childhood and elementary, so I would focus on elementary schools. But it would be a lot like Howe Hall Ames, which is a local school here. It's Shout Art out infused. to Berkeley County School District. Woo-hoo. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it would have the arts involved in all areas. So in the classroom, they would have the arts. They would be engaging. Um, Kids would be moving all over the place. It would be a diverse group of students, a diverse group of teachers. There would be a lot of things going on all over the place. There would be field trips. There would be all kinds of learning, experiential type things. But the other key thing is it would be a, a lab school for college students to come in so they can observe, they can see. They don't have to have just a particular class. Love well, that. awesome. And I want you to be part of these closing comments because mm-hmm. i got to do some business mm-hmm. here. You're listening to Energy Matters in the Classroom with Robin Berlinski. Today's special guest has been Dr. Tracy Hunter Doniger, or she's more affectionately known, Dr. HD. What a great show this has been. Really terrific. I encourage you, we encourage you to visit Robin's website at thelearningring.com, T-H-E-L-E-A-R-N-I-N-G-R-I-N-G.com, where you can submit questions, you can look up uh, uh, upcoming guests, you can listen to podcasts, and we're all over the place now, nationally, wherever fine podcasts are available, or every Sunday morning at 8 on South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, is 1250 WTMA. Tracy, thank you for being with us today. Robin, great show. What can I say? Thank you so much. This was this has been a pleasure, really. Nice sitting along, uh, aside from somebody you really respect. I Absolutely. Love All right, folks. Uh, tune in next time. We've got more great guests and more content coming up on Energy Matters in the Classroom with Robin Berlinski. See you next time.